This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. After working on two of Wisconsin's most high-profile Republican campaigns in 2016 and 2018, conservative operative Brian Reisinger is taking a break from the trail this year. But he's definitely not out of the game. I'm Jesse O'Poyan, and this is Wedge Issues, a Cap Times podcast about government and politics in Wisconsin. Brian, who is also a former journalist, has been writing about Wisconsin's conservative movement for publications like the National Review. So we talked a little while ago about what he's learned, what he's been writing about, and what he's observing from this year's election. Listen up. Okay, so Brian, you and I have known each other for a while now, a few years, and we met when you were working on Ron Johnson's campaign in 2016. Um, and you, I know, in a previous life were a reporter, and you've done some other stuff, you know, before that and after that. So for people who don't know you or they've heard your name, but they don't know you well, give me the short Brian Reisinger life story. Yeah. So the short story is I grew up on a dairy farm in Sauk County in our west of Madison and uh, somehow found my way into newsrooms and uh, found it to be this place where everyone disagrees all the time, which suited me just fine. And so I did uh, journalism for 10 years. And then after doing the Wasa Daily Herald, Janesville Gazette, Eau Claire Leader Telegram, kind of medium-sized dailies like that, I went to Nashville, did journalism there for a while, and then I got into politics. So I worked in the U.S. Senate on Capitol Hill for Senator Lamar Alexander, came home to work for Senator Ron Johnson in the 2016 campaign, which is when you and I met, um, AKA the great doomed plane crash, supposedly, but that that's yeah. supposed to be, um, somehow we landed on the wheels. And then since then I've been sticking around Wisconsin. I worked for governor Walker, um, worked for a variety of campaigns and candidates and causes and corporations and all kinds of other things since. So. Cool. And, um, and you're not working on a campaign right now. No. So this has been, um, like one of the best cycles I've had (laughs) Um, campaigns, you know, politics is like a drug and campaigns are like the hard stuff and, you know, you enjoy it and it's incredible. um, But it's also tough. And this was the first year in seven that I wasn't doing a statewide campaign of some kind um, in some stage. And so what I did this year was I focused on our business at platform communications where we do, corporate work. We also do issue advocacy on a bunch of things. Um, we were part of passing a constitutional amendment earlier this year. Um, we do work with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. We also do work with a lot of corporations and things. And I took the political part of my bandwidth and decided to steer it toward writing. And so rather than working for a specific campaign, I've been doing a lot of conservative commentary, a lot of conservative writing for National Review and other places. And that's kind of where I've been getting my fix. Um, in addition to some of those clients that have a little bit more of a political dimension to them. Um, so yeah, that's this year and, uh, my, my mental health is better than ever. And then, you know, we had to go on quarantine. So <laughs> you really can't catch a break, <laughs> <laughs> but it seems like, yeah, like kind of the best of, of both worlds for you. Like you get to do the writing thing, which you've 
you know, you can't really shake the journalist thing after you, you do it completely. Um, but you still get to do the political stuff. Yeah, journalism's a drug too. So we're all just a bunch of addicts around here. Pretty much, yeah. A lot, a lot of junkies just orbiting around. <laughs> like masochists <laughs> and junkies, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> conversations for us all to be talking. <laughs> Def- yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, how are you holding up in, in weird pandemic quarantine times? What are you uh, doing to survive? Yeah, you know, um, followers on social media might be aware of my cabin out in Sauk County. So this was uh, built on um, some land that I have adjacent to the farm where I grew up, where my dad and mom still farm. Um, little known secret that I'll confess here publicly for the first time is that cabin was actually built by an Amish man who we hired. Um, we were part of it. We helped with site prep and, uh, I had to work through a lot of the planning and things, but, uh, my dad was too busy to swing the hammer and I wasn't handy enough. So we had to bring in some help. And, uh, so we've got some fine rural Wisconsin Amish craftsmanship, uh, on display there. So that's through in a big way. And other than that, just doing everything that everyone else is doing, you know, working from home and, and all the weird stuff. So. Yeah. Um, no, the cabin looks great. I feel like we all could use the cabin to escape to right now or just like any, any change of scenery. <laughs> um, so yeah, so we, we've been talking a little bit before this about um, some of the writing that you've been doing and you had a piece in the National Review a couple of weeks ago, kind of middle, end of August uh, about the making of the Badger State Battleground, which I love the the headline and the alliteration, but it's it's true. I mean, like you and I both know neither of us could stay away from Wisconsin, you know, in these last few years, because there's so much going on here. Um, and, and when I've, you know, I've, I've heard this from you, I've heard this from other conservatives that I've talked to in Wisconsin, but I think, you know, one of the things that conservatives really pride themselves on in Wisconsin and, and Republicans, you know, within that is the ability to unite as a party and as a, as a movement um, at times when that's not easy and, and not natural. Um, and at times when, you know, things are going great and it, it comes naturally. And that's kind of what you dug into in this piece, which is, you know, incredibly thoroughly researched and sourced. You've got basically just like the dream Rolodex of Wisconsin Republicans you know, to talk to about this. Um, so when you were looking at that, at that unity and how they got there and how the movement's gotten there, what really stood out to you um, as you were working on this? Yeah, you know, the thing that really came to me was uh, the idea that luck favors the prepared. So they say that, you know, all sorts of things have to kind of fall your way. But also in order for you to recognize that opportunity, you have to be doing the right things and, and have put yourself in the right place at the right time. That's really what happened with the Wisconsin conservative movement. Luck favored the prepared. There were some things that um, fell the way that conservatives wanted them to. Um, and that we, of course, hope they don't for liberals. Um, but there was also a lot of preparation that went into that. And that really grew out of the grassroots. And so um, everybody knows that for the past 10 years, Wisconsin has been the center of political gravity in the country as far as any one individual state is concerned. But the question that I'd never really had answered for myself was why. And so when I was talking with National Review about this piece, I sort of said, you know, where does this strength of the conservative movement come from? And the argument was that, you know, Wisconsin is a super divided battleground state. And that's the fundamentals of, of that have been there for a while. But there was also a need for a lot of sort of unprecedented conservative success and a string of upset uh, campaign victories and other things to kind of nudge the state to the right. There wasn't a seismic shift to the right. It's not like it's a red state now. Um, it was a purple state that leaned blue and then it became kind of a purple state that leaned red and it's been bouncing back and forth ever since. 
So I just went about trying to answer that question. And so I started calling all the operatives that I've worked with, um, in some cases that I've worked at odds with, in some cases that I've been in the foxhole with. Um, and I started kind of you know, climbing the ladder, talking to different people. I got the chance to talk to Reince Priebus and Tommy Thompson and Jim Sensenbrenner. Um, talked with a couple of guys who I work for, Ron Johnson and Scott Walker, and kind of kept piecing it together. I did about two dozen interviews. And what came out of it was that the Wisconsin conservative movement had found a way to forge this pretty striking unity. No political movement is ever completely unified. And there's always um, bumps along the way. Um, and I definitely ran into some stories around those things. But the unity that was had in Wisconsin for the past decade amongst conservatives was a thing to behold. And that's really what allowed us to do all of the things that we did. And there's a lot that grew out from that. Sure. And you, you've, um, really, like you said, you've worked on two of the campaigns that really, I think, exemplified um, kind of the height of the conservative strength in Wisconsin. Um, one of them, no one really expected you to win, and you did. The other one, everyone knew was going to be a nail biter and, and didn't go your way. But what did you see in those races that had grown from kind of the, the decades beforehand that you kind of dug into in, in writing this? Yeah, there's just this shocking level of conservative infrastructure in Wisconsin that most people outside of the state um, don't quite get. Um, in most places, in one way or another, one of the parties is kind of a mess. And, um, you know, there's like a big national environment or there's a big tendency the state has. And those are the things that really dictate what's going to happen um, here in Wisconsin. Things are so evenly divided. Actually, Wisconsin is mathematically the most evenly divided state in the country when you take 2012 vote returns to 2018. So the polls bounce around when you look at actual vote returns for that time period. Um, there's no other state that's more evenly balanced. And so the makings are there, but you have to be functioning at an incredibly high level. And that's what the Wisconsin Conservative was able to do. It really started with the grassroots. And, um, you know, it goes all the way back to Tommy Thompson and Jim Sensenbrenner going around their respective parts of the state um, with really, you know, nothing to speak of. Um, Tommy Thompson was just an assemblyman at that time going around the state, speaking to Lincoln Day dinners with empty, scattered tables. Um, he said that, you know, they were such a minority party, they couldn't get anyone to come to their events. And he was out there talking to him and trying to get the party faithful going. And it really started with building up that grassroots. And then over the course of a couple decades, people started to invest in the infrastructure to go around that grassroots. And by the time you got to the early and mid 2000s, um, some of those pieces had begun to come together. And that's kind of where that luck favored the prepared moment comes in because in 2010, there was this huge opportunity for Republicans to win if they could harness the energy. And you had other states like Utah having incumbent senators going down in flames. Um, you had civil war in Alaska and in Florida, you had people actually being driven from the Republican party. And in Wisconsin, the conservative grassroots and the party establishment unified and found a way to nominate um, some conservative leaders like Scott Walker and Ron Johnson, who could be elected, the most conservative possible people who could be elected and found that sweet spot that was so elusive in other places. So it, it really happened and came together in 2010, but it built on the decades of work that Governor Thompson, Congressman Sensenbrenner, and others did. And not only were there big victories that year, but the victories extended further than they did in other states, and they lasted for longer. So after that came the recall upset for Governor Walker and his re-election in 2014 and more conservative victories. And then there was Senator Johnson's um, upset in 2016. And all of these things occurred because of the massive infrastructure that had been built around this grassroots core. 
And so many other states either had a rowdy grassroots that wasn't being utilized and wasn't being engaged with, or a good stuffy establishment party that, you know, didn't have any energy to it. And in Wisconsin, we managed to have both and combine those things. It's so hard to imagine, um, you know, as someone who started covering politics in the last decade here, showing up to any sort of Republican event and not having massive turnout. I mean, I've been, you know, covered a lot of Trump rallies, covered a lot of Walker events, his presidential announcement. I mean, it's, you know, you, you go into Waukesha County and it's like, yep, come on, you just put up a sign and everyone shows up. But um, it, it took a long time to get there. It's really funny. To, it's like weird to imagine Tommy Thompson just driving around like, trying to get people to show up same same tommy pounding the podium rousing the faithful but it was like five people in an empty room you know (laughs) Um, you know the other one that's that's funny in that time period is congressman sensenbrenner um he was in a time period where like waukesha county had a lot of democrats and a lot of the elected officials in waukesha which you know crucial waukesha county the biggest county as far as republican votes in many ways um was one that was you know dominated in many ways by Democrats. And, um, you know, and he's great because he tells these stories and he says, you know, even the people who are Republicans were just go along, get along types that were in his words, quote, aiding and abetting the liberal agenda in Madison. So I'm sure that all of your listeners will love that. (laughs) But that was his view was that it was all Democrats or it was Republicans who might as well have been Democrats. And that's obviously a sea change um, from then until now. And, uh, you know, it, it took people being willing to go around and, and try to create a movement out of nothing. Obviously, there was a, a slight pendulum shift in 2018. And it's even everything since then, state Supreme Court elections have been back and forth. And, um, you know, the governor's race couldn't have been any closer. Um, do you ever think, though, there's a point at which you know, there's been such Republican strength in the legislature and just in general at the state level that, you get a sharp pushback or is it kind of you know, baked in in some ways based on, you know, safe districts and, and just the sheer numbers that they've built up and the strength that they've built up over, over time. Yeah. I think it speaks to one of the great myths of politics, which is sometimes um, the press and, you know, commentators on both sides and everybody, they start to think that things are, are really um, rigid, right. And things are going to be the way they've always been. And there's no mathematical way for something to happen. And then lo and behold, Ron Johnson wins in 2016 or Donald Trump wins in 2016 or Scott Walker wins the recall when all of the polling showed him down. And politics is a lot more fluid than people give it credit for, which is funny because everyone's always talking about how unpredictable politics is. But everyone also likes to act like it's rigid and we know what's going to happen here. And um, but I think there are some things that are truths, which is that if one party's been in power for long enough, there's going to be a snapback. And in Wisconsin, there are certainly a lot of things that could have been done and that conservatives, myself included, are wishing had been done and that we'd done uh, to see 2018 turn out differently. But there was also some natural laws of gravity. And um, one of the laws of gravity was that Republicans have been in power for the better part of a decade with unified control of government here in Wisconsin. On top of that, there were two years of unified Republican control on the federal level and a natural snapback against the party that was in the White House, um, a historic snapback that actually wasn't out of line with the sorts of things that you've seen happen in other big midterm years. And so those were some laws of gravity that were in place. And from that standpoint, Scott Walker kind of defied gravity for quite a while, not quite long enough, um, about 
short of long enough, but um, for quite a while. But yeah, there was definitely, you know, the, the Republican winning coalition that had dominated the state for a better part of a decade had um, reached a point where it was becoming tougher sledding and we didn't quite make it up the hill. Kind of looping back to that unpredictability, um, I was thinking about this uh, actually when I was working on a column last night that in 2016, because I covered that that Senate race so closely, I actually wasn't completely surprised that Ron Johnson won. I mean, the polling didn't indicate it and all common sense and logic was telling me like, no, of course, you know, Russ Feingold should win this, but I've been covering the campaigns. I'd seen, you know, what they've been doing on the ground, what their events looked like, what, you know, some of the late ads looked like. And so when that happened, when Ron Johnson won, I was not terribly surprised. I was very surprised when Donald Trump won, although, you know, it would make sense that they might go hand in hand. So, you know, I know you can talk about um, what got Ron Johnson across the finish line, and I want you to do that. But I'm also curious what you think did it for Trump, because I'm, I'm guessing it wasn't entirely the same set of factors. Yeah, not completely. So um, on the Trump piece of it, I mean, the president absolutely brought something to Wisconsin that had been occurring, but had not been occurring to the level that it would have needed to for him to be able to win. So he obviously energized rural Wisconsin in a way that had not occurred, you know, in modern history. And he brought that to the table alongside of the traditional Republican coalition that Wisconsin Republicans were very good at turning out. And so people talk about the rural urban divide in this country and it was in place for a while. And it's true that, you know, the, the Trump era exemplifies it, but people don't appreciate the degree to which he brought people into the process who hadn't been in it at all before, or maybe had only occasionally been in it or had never voted Republican before. And it was a broadening of the tent um, in the sense that when you combine his tent with the tent of the traditional Republicans, it was a pretty big tent. Um, and that's not something that I think a lot of people don't realize. And especially people who have um, Trump derangement syndrome, it's difficult to see through the fact that he brought more people into the party. And that's what politicians should be doing. Um, there are other parts of the party that changed and there are other challenges to the party, but he did bring people into the party. And that's something that people on both sides of the aisle should want from their politicians. So um, it's kind of difficult to explain other than to say, I know you've seen it and I'm I'm sure other people who are listeners of yours have seen it. When you were up in Northern Wisconsin at that time, it was like electric. Like the, the connection between people was almost like there was a lightning bolt going across the street, you know, and people were very energized, very worked up, very angry, but also very excited. And um, so that's that's kind of how Trump won is he was able to maximize that rural vote. And I don't know that necessarily the rural vote has been maximized yet. Um, I think there are still people out there who weren't engaged um, or who didn't vote for him who um, still could because they feel like there's nobody else who's really listening to them. Um, so that maximization of the rural vote was something to behold. And it was kind of lightning in a bottle. And I think that the 20 campaign has been trying to figure out how to bottle lightning and kind of systematize what happened. Um, and so we'll see if they're able to succeed, but that's what they've been doing. Um, Ron's task was almost the opposite, which is he had to appeal to that rural vote, which he did, but also hold the traditional Republican coalition together during a turbulent year when there was a new different kind of candidate. And we went from looking at rural Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin, saying, how is he going to reach all of those people so that we can build on the base in southeast Wisconsin to it almost flipping around and saying he's reaching all these people and Trump is also helping with those people. How are we going to keep traditional Republican country together? 
And he succeeded in doing that. And basically, um, there were these two campaigns kind of dancing opposite dances. And it turned out to be a pretty beautiful ballet. And Ron Johnson won more votes than any other Republican in state history that year. But it had to be both of those things working together. Now, Ron ultimately ran a couple of points ahead of the president. And that's important to happen. Um, you know, Mike Gallagher in Green Bay also ran a couple of points ahead of Ron Johnson. And there were assembly and Senate districts who where the Republicans ran ahead of Mike Gallagher and Ron Johnson. So it, the best victories come from the bottom up. And that happens to be what Wisconsin has been really fertile ground for for the past decade. That, that bottom up element, that grassroots element, too, that you've talked about. Um, obviously, it's, it's been, I think, in many ways, an asset for the Republican Party. And, and I think, you know, probably the Democratic Party would say they have benefited from their own grassroots support. But from a sort of a party analysis perspective, what are the, the pitfalls and the, the strengths of being driven by your grassroots supporters instead of your more kind of machine, we do this all the time, folks? Yeah, well, the worst thing that can happen is if the party establishment kind of wets its pants and runs away. Um, and that's what usually happens. So usually you have all this grassroots energy and the thought on the part of the Washington wise men or the party bosses or whoever it is, is like, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Like we can't be involved in that. And they run away. And the truth is that when you see the establishment running away from energy and politics, it's a sign that they're missing the opportunity. Um, and so one of the pitfalls is just that you don't see the opportunity and that all that happens, at least in the conservative end of things, the way we feel is the media casts everybody as a bunch of crazy people. The party establishment doesn't capitalize and tries to weather it. And that's all that happens. That's one of the big pitfalls. Um, if you embrace it, um, there's, there's good and bad and, and you have to figure out how to utilize it. The best thing that comes of it is all of the energy, obviously. And you have all of these people who are really, really passionate. Um, but you have to marry that with a real organization that knows um, what the metrics are, where we need to get our votes from, how to raise money, um, all of those things that you need to fuel a movement um, further. And so um, that's one thing that can happen is that it can become disorganized if the, if the grassroots and the party don't meld in a meaningful way. The grassroots are very organized. They know what doors they need to be knocking on. They know what people they need to bring to their events. They knew who in their neighborhood needs to be touched. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the connection with the party is always going to be seamless. So that's another thing that can happen. Um, but some of the stuff that comes out of that combination when it's successful is, is pretty incredible. Um, one, I mean, your party is more conservative if you're, if you're a Republican. It's more liberal if you're a Democrat. Um, and that is a good thing from the standpoint of your beliefs. Um, it can be a tough thing from the standpoint of getting a fair shake in the press or getting a fair shake from the money in D.C. or getting a fair shake from the pundit class who all want to point to you as being outside the mainstream at that point. So that can become very dangerous. Um, but generally, your party is going to become more conservative, more liberal. It's also going to become more populist because you're closer to real people. So when the grassroots are driving a lot of what's going on and you're listening to those people, you're going to have a lot more um, sense of what's going on on the ground. So um, the trick is, can you find a set of issues that is going to both energize your grassroots base and appeal to the swing vote? And when party bosses or campaigns make the wrong decisions about that, it's kind of like juggling a pistol. But when they make the right decisions about that, you can find a way to energize your people and appeal to the swing vote. And the result can be pretty explosive. Now, explosive in Wisconsin means you win by three points, you know, so it's, it's still pretty tight. Um, and you've got to kind of play a perfect game. But ultimately, in our case, we had a more conservative, 
more populist and sort of more lean, mean, tough operation um, as a party as a result of all of that. But it's also easier for it to go the other way. It's easier for it to fall apart organizationally or go in a direction that isn't helpful. Do you think in general people want their partisan supporters, people want their party to be to kind of be more conservative or be more liberal, to be more to one end or that they want it to be a little more evened out in the middle. I mean, I think that's kind of the constant debate that everyone's having of do you, like you said, you appeal to swing voters and are swing voters more moderate? Are they more in the center or are they just inclined to to split back and forth? Yeah. Um, I think that the danger that the parties had been falling into that Wisconsin Republicans happened to leap out of and figure out earlier than maybe other, maybe certainly the Democrats here in Wisconsin, but also other parties on both sides and other parts of the country is that swing voters aren't necessarily mushy, indecisive people who just want to be presented something vanilla and safe. Swing voters are people who have a mix of views and you could have someone who's strongly pro second amendment, um, but also is pro choice or, you know, pick your issue pairing. There could be all kinds of different combinations. It's a kaleidoscope. And something that Wisconsin Republicans realized, and this was a big part of the Walker legacy, um, although also it goes back to Tommy Thompson and others, is if you get things done, if you say, if you do what you said you were going to do, it can pay dividends. So you can be a little more conservative than the rest of the state. But if people in the state felt like something needed to be done, you said you were going to do it, and then you did it, even if they don't agree with all parts of your agenda, um, you can win. And you have to pair that with issues that matter. So, you know, for Scott Walker, it was fighting for taxpayers. Um, for Ron Johnson, it was sort of being as anti-Washington as they were. Um, and so there's ways to energize your base and appeal to those swing voters that can, you know, adhere to your principles. It's also really easy for movements to miss that or to put up something vanilla, which I think is one of the dangers that the Democrats have right now. Um, there isn't a lot of natural energy to the national campaign around Joe Biden at the moment. That doesn't mean he's going to lose. Wisconsin is going to be a toss-up, and the country is um, going to have a very interesting night, I think, regardless of what happens. But there isn't a lot of natural energy to that candidacy, and that's a problem. That's something that keeps Joe Biden's advisors up at night, I can tell you, because I've been in campaigns that have had more and less levels of energy, and it turns out you want energy, despite what you know Washington will sometimes say about the sources of that energy. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. If you were running Donald Trump's campaign, how would you win Wisconsin? He's got to run on his record. He's got to run on his record. We have to move past the distractions and the different ways that the Democrats are going to try to brand him and all that sort of stuff. He's got to run on the fact that he cut taxes, that he unleashed the economy, that he rebuilt the military. And basically, that we have the American comeback, and he has to show how he's staging that comeback again as a result of what's happened with COVID. You saw him doing that in the RNC. Um, you saw him actually doing that even during the DNC, which is a little ironic. Um, it was kind of like two weeks of a convention for Trump just because the Democrats, I don't know, it just sort of felt like it was filmed from my aunt's kitchen. And no offense to my aunt. And, <laughs> you know, Donald Trump was here, right? 
And so I think that we have to see more of that and more running on his record and, and what he's going to do to, to get the country moving forward again, despite, you know, some pretty unprecedented crises. Over the summer, the focus was on the crisis and how fast they were spinning and whether things that were being done or said were making them spin faster. And that wasn't helpful um, for the president's campaign. But um, I think he found his footing. And so it's going to be uh, interesting. I think we're going to come to a time where things are going to tighten up. Yeah, I uh, had someone ask me yesterday, oh, well, Biden's ahead by, what, six, eight points in Wisconsin. You know, should he feel good about that? I was like, oh, <laughs> he never feel this good about anything in the polls. Terrified. Yeah. <laughs> Terrified if, if your opponent is in striking distance in the fall. Right. It doesn't matter what side you're on. Be no. afraid. Um, so if you, you know, this is going to be a stretch for you, thinking, going to make you think creatively, but if you were running Joe Biden's campaign here, what would you do to, to get him Wisconsin? Well, luckily this is a podcast, so people can't see me sweat as I try to figure out <laughs> how to, how to work in the Republican angle here on the, on the Biden. <laughs> um, yeah. Biden, uh, Biden has to lean in on some of the natural credit that he gets from working class voters, um, He's over the years, he's told a decent story about his life. And obviously, he's had some real things happen in his life that that are things that people can connect with. Um, the challenge for him to be able to do that is he's a 50 year career politician. And that sort of tends to fog all glasses. And um, I think he's picked a running mate that isn't necessarily going to play real well here. Um, I think that he's gotten in a position where he's in a party that has sort of hijacked his agenda. And I'm not sure that he's really totally driving that ship. And so it's hard to you know, know whether you're going to get into the harbor or just crash into the pier. And if you don't have your hands on the wheel. So I'm not sure the degree to which he does. But if he had his hand on the wheel and he was focusing on something, um, it would be that natural connection that he's at times been able to sell to people. Um, I don't know if that's still there. We'll see. I think that President Trump has tapped into that in a very big way. Um, but, you know, if I was the vice president, I would be focusing on that and trying to draw that comparison um, rather than the record, because the truth is that he's been around for a very long time and there are still very big problems that he says he's going to solve and that he had the opportunity to solve. And that's uh, kind of the same problem that Hillary Clinton had in that way. So that was a genuine thing. Um, but they should be spending a heck of a lot more time in Wisconsin than they are. Um, you're not going to make a prediction for... 2020, you, you're going to say it's a toss up, right? Yeah, I've lived too close to uh, the knife's edge to to want to walk on that one. But um, I think what I would what I would say is I think that the race is going to tighten here in Wisconsin. Um, it's structurally tighter than it's been in the first place. Both sides kind of roll out of bed with 40 some percent of the vote. And then you've got to maximize getting that vote out and win over the swing vote. And you got to do both those things, walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, so it'll be tighter than it is. It's also going to be tighter because the contrast getting drawn, Joe Biden benefited for a long time, uh, by Republicans not being able to really draw that contrast because he was in the basement and he has high name ID and he's well known. And there's sort of these gauzy good feelings about him from when he was vice president, because you don't really have to do anything when you're vice president. You just have to be like a nice guy. And so he got to be a nice guy for eight years. And um, so there was all of that kind of built up credit with people and you compare that to the president dealing with all the crises he was dealing with. And it was a good recipe for Joe Biden. And if he could have continued running from the basement, I think he would have, but now we're getting into the real campaign. 
And not only is the race naturally going to tighten because Wisconsin is so evenly balanced, but it's also going to tighten because there's a real comparison being drawn. And Joe Biden has to come out of the basement and, um, you know, face a couple fists in the backyard. And this is politics. So there's going to be gravity for him. And uh, we'll see what happens. But I predict a tight race. <laughs> I was going to try, I was going to try to wrap up the 2020 talk there, but um, I started thinking about these you know, Lincoln Project efforts and, and you know, the sort of the never Trumpers who have gone on to do things like the bulwark. And this is a thing that exists. I don't know, you know, to what extent that is representative of people. So from from folks that you know, that you talk to, you deal with, are there Biden Republicans to be got? That's a great question. Um, I would say by and large, no, with an asterisk. The reason I say by and large, no, is that anybody, you know, the press kind of likes to say that either the Republican Party is going to be blown in half by Donald Trump or it's, you know, guilty of mindless fealty to Donald Trump. And both can't be true. The reality is that there are a lot of Republicans out there who support the president, whether they like what he says or not. So the reality is that the president has, you know, post 9-11 George W. Bush level support within the Republican Party. And that's not just from a bunch of slavish people who are willing to follow him off some sort of cliff like the Democrats want to describe. That is real people out there who hear what he has to say and see what he's done and support him. And there's a lot of people who are Republicans who like what the president has done, don't always love everything that he has to say. Um, because he's unconventional and he says things his own way. And that's part of him shaking things up. That's part of him, you know, skewering sacred cows and getting things done. And so there's a lot of Republicans out there who support him, who are enthusiastic about him, even if they wouldn't have necessarily sent every single tweet. There is a smaller contingent of people who are less sure of the president in this environment because the Democrats have been working on them for a long time and have been really kind of taking out some of the issues like race and other things that they always throw at Republicans and uh, trying to give them the sense that the Republicans are just outside of the mainstream. And that is primarily something that you see in the suburbs. Um, there's a lot of talk about suburban women. There's all kinds of suburban people and all kinds of people in all kinds of different places that should be paid attention to, but suburban women get a lot of attention for this issue. And so there is some work that needs to be done to shore that up because the Democrats have been doing so much to twist who Donald Trump is um, for the voters from the Republican perspective. Um, I think the never Trump element is more something that exists in the media and in the operative class and that kind of thing. Um, there are people too um, on both sides. <laughs> <laughs> Operatives are people too. Operatives are people uh, technically. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, the people, the people who are, are part of that, I think, um, are people who have, for various reasons, ended up not connecting with the Republican electorate um, in this environment. And um, so I don't know that they are the exact representation of, like, the suburban voters who are a little bit unsure right now. Um, the suburban voters who are a little bit unsure right now are people who are Republican leaners they were always a little bit more moderate. Pro frankly, they probably are more moderate ideologically than the never Trump people, you know, from the standpoint of fiscal issues or other things like that. And um, they just are unsure. And so they need reassuring that it's the president's record that matters. So pulling back to the state level or statewide level, um, looking past 2020, there's going to be a number of important elections coming up who are, and, and you know, 
all anything can change in a matter of months or weeks or you know whatever we're looking at but but who are some of the figures in the Wisconsin Republican Party that you've got your eye on that you think are going to be kind of taking the the mantle next well there's a ton and that's a reflection of the strength of the movement so the movement, something that I write about in National Review is that the movement at its height was incredibly strong and stronger than other movements would have been in their successes. And even in our defeats, the movement is stronger than it might otherwise be. So even in 2018, when Scott Walker lost by one point, um, and a lot of other things didn't go our way, the U.S. House of Representatives went from Republican to Democrat, any night that your government loses, an, or that your party loses an entire arm of government isn't a good night for you. But we still had people like Brian Stile, who one against Randy Bryce, despite the fact that Iron Stash was supposed to be the great blue collar savior of the Democrat Party and was at one time rumored to be ready to beat Paul Ryan. I mean, the, the height around the hype around this guy was incredible. So um, Brian Stile is obviously a, a bright spot in 2018. He's been working really hard, doing a lot of really good things. There's a massive bench for 2022 and beyond. Um, Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Clayfish. Um, Senate candidate from 2018, Kevin Nicholson. Um, Eric Hovde has been out there being vocal on COVID. Um, Congressman Mike Gallagher has a bright future. Um, obviously, we just had two people from the state Senate who were elected to Congress, essentially, and are going to be elected in full here in the fall. Scott Fitzgerald and Tom Tiffany. Robin Voss is one of the more effective speakers, I think, in the country. I mean, I think it's like take our speaker and put him alongside a speaker from either party in other parts of the country. And have they had to deal with the things that he's had to deal with? I don't think that it, they have. Um, so I'm going to get in trouble because when you start naming names, there's <laughs> that um, legitimately because there's a lot of really talented people out there, but there's a massive bench. Um, and we've also obviously got one of my personal favorites, Ron Johnson, who is still in the Senate, despite two times being predicted to not be and um, still, still doing his thing, still raging against the machine up there. You know, um, all the people that are yelling at their TVs are constantly cheering him on. So um, we'll see what happens. All right. Um, one last politics question before I throw two not political questions at you. Um, biggest strengths and weaknesses for both parties in Wisconsin right now? The biggest strengths for the Republican Party in Wisconsin are, um, one, that we are a grassroots-based movement. Um, it can be difficult after you're defeated. Um, there's a lot of things that go away, but one of the things that doesn't go away, you know, money can go away. Positive media attention can go away. Um, a hold on a particular public office goes away, but something that doesn't go away is the connections that are built between people as they're kind of stitched into that broader grassroots army. And so that's still there. And so we have a very grassroots centric party and that's really strong. Um, and then as mentioned, we have an incredible bench with a lot of really, really talented people. One of the things that we don't have right now is the benefit of being in the governor's office, which is a huge asset for fundraising. And so that's something that Republicans are, are doing without. They're doing without that bully pulpit from which you can not only drive the agenda, but also can raise serious money. Um, the flip side of that is that the Democrats, they're in a position where they hold a lot of the cards now. Um, they've got the governor's office. They've got the attorney general's office. They've got one of the U.S. Senate seats, not the other one. Um, they've got all these assets that help them drive the conversation, drive the agenda, raise money. Um, they seem to have learned a few lessons from the past decade is another thing. Um, they've learned what they need to do, at least in some degree to begin to build their party back. 
Um, and so that's, um, that's a set of advantages that they have. The, di- the downside and the disadvantage that the Democrats have is that they still have an incredibly um, just astounding talent for taking things for granted. So the idea that Joe Biden wasn't in Wisconsin until last week, um, the idea that the Democrats are only campaigning virtually, not even like knocking on doors in neighborhoods where people are okay with having in-person contact. Certainly there are a lot of voters that you have to reach virtually, both for safety and for their own comfort. But there's also places where you can reach voters and people who might vote for you, who you can only really connect with in person. People are going to the grocery store. People are getting takeout food. There are ways to interact with people in the real world, despite what the Democrat campaigns are saying right now. And that is just another variation of taking it for granted. So we'll see what happens. And again, predictions are dangerous in a state like Wisconsin. But Hillary Clinton took the state for granted by not even coming here. Um, Democrats have sort of been taking the state for granted by sort of like being here a little bit more, but not really fully. And so, you know, they've got this this thing where they seem to think that the national environment is going to be enough to save them. And some years it is. In 2018, it was. But a lot of years it isn't. And a good party um, wins big in the years when things favor them and still wins in some years when they shouldn't have. And when they lose, they lose like the buzzer buster at the end, like 2018. And that's something that they haven't figured out yet. Okay, so we are, you know, like we all do these days, talking to each other um, on our computers with with, uh, windows into our backgrounds. And like everyone's favorite thing to do now is to obsess over what people have in their room. So I'm seeing, unfortunately, you know, people listening can't see this, but I'm seeing some interesting signs and and framed items behind you. So yeah, a little bit about your room. We've got a couple. So the first thing for the Madison listeners right over this shoulder is an episode or a issue of the Isthmus, the year that Ron Johnson won the big upset in 2016 and Donald Trump won as well. And most of the counties there are red, including a bunch that are usually supposed to be blue. So I just want to point that out for the benefit of the hate mail uh, quota, which I maybe felt like I hadn't quite, you know, gotten up to the level that it should be yet. So yeah, um, we'll work on that for you. <laughs> above, I mean, I can send you some of mine if you want. Yeah, we can share. <laughs> yeah. Um, up above that is a is an issue of National Journal in summer of 2015, right when I took the job with Ron Johnson. Um, right around that time, they came out. They used to have a poll of insiders, and it was. Um, like hundreds of insiders who got to vote anonymously on things and then give their comments and talk smack. And they voted Ron Johnson, the number one most vulnerable senator in the country, um, even ahead of Mark Kirk of Illinois, which it's Illinois, it's blue. Um, There's a million reasons why that was like an absurd conclusion, but they thought it and they thought it spiritedly. So I thought I'd better frame it, put on my wall. By the way, I brought it home and I had it in a frame before we won. Um, it's true that I didn't hang it up until after, but that was just because I was living as a campaign gypsy and all my stuff was in a box. So that's been a badge of courage for a while. Um, vapors for voting for Ron Johnson. There was a big, uh, I don't know if you heard about this big vape vote. Uh, <laughs> uh, vape vote. Yeah, it was a thing. Um, there was, there were events. Um, there were stores, vape stores, other places. And the truth is that there was a real connection. There were real small business people who were really ticked off. Um, 
and uh, they they voted for Ron Johnson, and it was a it was a mix of people. So it was one of the swing vote segments that were out there anyway. Um, let's see here. What else? Um, yeah, those are the highlights, I guess. The rest of it's sort of boring stuff. Got a bunch of Wisconsin stuff. There's kind of a political memorabilia wall, a Wisconsin wall. Uh, and then obviously there's a huge American flag over my shoulder. You can't see that, but I, I know you can feel the glow. So Oh, always. Yeah. <laughs> New patriotism. <laughs> so um, another thing besides journalism and, and a sick taste for politics that you and I have in common is a good love of good old classic country music. And you like to share, um, you know, like real country song of the day. You talk about songs and their messages. So I'm wondering what you're listening to lately that you're into. And this is putting you on the spot. So I don't know if you can come up with a real country song for this episode, but if you've got something to suggest for people to listen to, uh, you can, you can do that. Wow. That is a great question. You should ask questions for a living. (laughs) I am listening a lot lately to, um, a guy named Whitey Morgan, who uh, he's played in Madison, downtown Madison. Uh, there's a lot of camouflage hats when my Whitey Morgan plays in downtown Madison, much more than there usually would be. And not like the cool hip urban ones that you wear to the side, but like the ones that the brims are bent and like you wear them and they're like, mm-hmm. you know, full of dirt and grease from people who actually work for a living. So those kind of camouflage hats. I recommend Whitey Morgan though, because he was a big hit in downtown uh, Madison when he came. As far as a country song for this episode, here's a here's a deep cut, and it's obscure, and a lot of people are kind of probably roll their eyes, uh, but I would recommend Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, One Too Many Mornings. So when Bob Dylan uh, like got in his motorcycle accident and was sort of having this big like, who am I moment, he went to Nashville and he recorded some songs with Johnny Cash, and they made some of the best recordings ever. And one of the songs was called One Too Many Mornings. And it's all about, you know, sort of trying to get through um, a long journey where things feel pretty repetitious. And I guess maybe that fits in an environment where everyone has been stuck in their house or stuck in one place or another for, you know, going on six, seven months now. So it might be one too many mornings, but uh, you can still get a little bit of enjoyment out of things along the way. That's perfect. Well, I'm sure we'll have to check in at some point to hash hash over the results, which neither of us will be able to predict until the last minute or maybe even days later. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, thanks for braving the wedge issues and uh, sharing your thoughts. It was good, good catching up. Absolutely. Great talk. Thanks for having me. Like to me. And since my heart still likes to be, I'm coming home. Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our theme music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. For more episodes like this, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen. You can also check out our other Cap Times podcasts like The Corner Table about food and drink and The Madsplainers about local government and more. If you have feedback or suggestions for me, you can find me on Twitter at jessieopie or you can email me at jopoyan at madison.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.